I, Sir Tampra Zeros of Uzul Darum, shall write, with my left hand, since I have no longer any other, the tale of everything that befell Teru von Palios and myself in the shrine of the god Sethogua, which lies neglected by the worship of man in the jungle-taken suburbs of Comorium, that long-deserted capital of the Hyperborean rulers. I shall write it with the violet juice of the Suvana palm, which turns to a blood-red rubric with the passage of years, on a strong vellum that is made from the skin of the Mastodon, as a warning to all good thieves and adventurers who may hear some lying legend of the lost treasures of Comorium and be tempted thereby. HPPodcraft.com Man, those are a lot of silly words. <laughs> a lot. In my brain, you know, when I read these kinds of stories, it'll look at those crazy names and just convert it to something familiar automatically. Yeah. So in the story, whenever I read the name Turo Ampolios, it just in my head immediately converted to Olympia Dukakis. <laughs> you ever do that? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I wish. I wish it was Olivia Dukakis. <laughs> anyway, what is it that we're reading? That's the first paragraph uh, from Clark Ashton Smith's The Tale of Zatampra Zeros. A story well-liked by the author H.P. Lovecraft, and guess what? That's why we're talking about it here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Right. Satampra Zeros, or as my brain read it, the tale of Tura Satana, <laughs> who was our reader that we heard there at the top. That is the delightful Greg Johnson, actor, filmmaker extraordinaire. You can see his stuff at his YouTube page. We'll link out to it in the show notes. He's got some really funny stuff in there. Good to hear from you, Greg. Glad to have you on the show. And uh, we've got an announcement we've been kind of hinting at for a couple of weeks, but it should be live today by the time this comes out. We are launching a Kickstarter for two live shows in August and in October. The one in August will be at the Necronomicon in Providence. The Chicago show will be in October. You can link out from our show notes to the Kickstarter page. We'll be pushing it, of course, on social media. We're looking to raise the money so that we can get out there and do those two shows. Yeah, uh, hopefully we'll be able to return to Providence. It was a wonderful time. We're going to try and change things up a little bit, not just do a live show like we normally do, but we've got a few other ideas. One thing that we're going to do is this comedy quiz show which uh, should be pretty good we're gonna have some guests uh, on the panel <laughs> well it'll be a quiz show uh, com- labeling it comedy will be something that people can do later if it, <laughs> if it works out <laughs> that's right it might be intended comedy quiz show right. but not actually successful comedy quiz show we'll see yeah we'll see but I, i'm excited about it. i think it's going to be good we're going to come up with a few other things to keep it entertaining and if you can't make it to those please still contribute to the Kickstarter and you will have access to all the recordings we do of both shows in Providence and in Chicago. That's right. And we're going to throw some other incentives up on the uh, the page as we go. Yeah. So I can't wait. It's going to be super fun. Hopefully everybody will get out there and support us so we can yeah. again. Please uh, give us a couple bucks. We haven't been out on the road for a while and Chris, I haven't seen you since Providence, right? So it's been two years. Wow. Years. It's crazy. It'd be nice to get the gang back together again. Yeah. Talk about some weird fiction. <laughs> Which we're going to do right now, boys. We're doing it right now. So when I first started reading this, I felt like I was reading some Lord Dunsany. Mm-hmm. And doing the lightest of research, I found out Smith was doing a Lord Dunsany piece. So the effect uh, worked for him. It did. Specifically, Lovecraft in 1929 wrote to Smith and he said, Well nigh delirious delight, you have achieved in its fullest glamour the exact Dunsanian touch which I find it almost impossible to duplicate. Altogether, I think this comes close to being your high point in prose fiction to date. Wow. And he's talking about this story. This story. Well, I definitely felt like it was a Dunsany story, but I actually enjoyed it better than any of the ones that we read for the show. I did too. I think probably specifically it's the Thangabrin the Jeweler 
story that this is kind of taking off of. There is a Dunsany story called How Nunth Would Have Practiced His Art Upon the Knolls. Yeah, we covered that one as well. And there's also uh, Beth Mora. All of the Dunsany stories that we read had some thieving going on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's what this is about. I, I also felt like this story had a good Lovecraftian Mountains of Madness touches to it. Um, oh, in, yeah. In that fruit, well, something that happens later, definitely. But in that first paragraph, that idea of I'm writing this to you now as a, as a warning. I'm doing this so that you won't go where I went. Meet the tragedy that I met. Wait, how, when did that, when, when did it, Mountains of Madness? 31. Well, this story predates at the Mountains of Madness, and there's a lot of similarities, actually. D- does it? it? Yeah, I guess if you wrote to him in 1929. There is a lot of similarities. So Lovecraft might have been actually a little inspired by this yeah. story in, in a certain way. Yeah. And we'll so. talk about it at the end and I'll, without, you know, spoiling too much right off the bat. But what about Clark Ashton Smith? Here we've been doing the show since 2009 and we've never had the author on. That was a weird way to phrase it. We're never <laughs> going to have the author on. But uh, it's the first time we've covered the author. Yes. And all that time. And, he, and you know, he's he's a big guy in the uh, the weird fiction world. He is. Absolutely. Yeah. He's one of the big three uh, with Robert E. Howard and Lovecraft that mm-hmm. they always kind of talk about. But he was born in 1892 and he lived until 1961. So he was about, yeah, I think he was 68 years old. Yeah. When he was a kid, he grew up in Northern California, which surprised me. I don't know. I thought he was a Midwest guy for some reason when I was doing my research. No, he, he grew up in Auburn, which I think is around Sacramento and... I've, I've actually heard him referred to as the poet of Auburn. And he had a, a, a bit of a strange childhood. He grew up in a cabin that his parents had built. Mm-hmm. And he was sort of agoraphobic. He had sort of a fear of crowds and things. And in, he went to primary school, but he never ended up going to high school. Like mm-hmm. he was accepted, in, but he just never went. And he was self-taught or taught by his parents. And supposedly he also had a photographic memory. Allegedly, he read the entire dictionary cover to cover and retained most of it. <laughs> Well, he's got definitely has a mastery of vocabulary. I, I also heard that he had read a number of Encyclopedia Britannica editions front to back and, and memorized what were those as well, it, which I did something similar. We had a set of encyclopedias in my house growing up. I didn't read them as much as I drew mustaches on the pictures of people in there <laughs> oh, no. and gave them heat vision. <sighs> but, you know, similar, oh, similar. Yeah, very similar. So, That's why I was called the poet of East Moline. Who called you that? Nobody called me that. <laughs> So he started writing when he was super young. He was 11, uh-huh. and yeah. he was really inspired by Arabian Nights, not unlike H.P. Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. And he was published when he was 17 years old in a magazine periodical called uh, Black Cat. He had a book of poetry that got published when he was 19, and it got great reviews, and it sort of got him into the poetry scene a bit. And he was floating mm-hmm. around literary circles with Ambrose Bierce and Jack effing London. Mm-hmm. But he took ill of some kind. I'm not exactly sure what his illness was. And he fell out of the scene because of his illness. I know he had um, some distinct periods that they break his fiction up into. There's that early period where he was writing poetry. Mm-hmm. And we're obviously going to be covering the weird fiction period uh, from yeah. the 30s. It was really only about a nine-year period that he was writing this kind of stuff. And I know that Smith always thought of himself as a poet and didn't particularly like writing these short stories, which is too bad because he was so good at it. That's so... Uh, so frequently the case with writers, you know, yeah. <laughs> what I really wanted to be was a poet, but I guess I'll settle for writing amazing fiction. <laughs> he was a correspondent, not just with Lovecraft, but also with Robert E. Howard. Yeah. You know, they never met each other, though, those three. No, it's all through correspondence. Yeah, it's very strange. People often say Smith is part of the Lovecraft circle, but he's actually the one that introduced Lovecraft to a number of his correspondents like Samuel Loveman. So really, Lovecraft should be included in the Clark Ashton Smith circle. True, but... 
who's more of a rock star now? <laughs> That's right. How many Clark Ashton Smith uh, movies are there or role-playing games? Yeah. But anyway, as you say, we'll talk about him more as we go on. Uh, let's get into the story. Yeah, it starts off with this thief, Satampra Zeros, mm-hmm. and he's writing left-handed as he has no right hand to write with. Mm-hmm. So he's like, I'm, I'm, I, that's all I got to do is write with my left because I lost my right hand. And so right off that, we get something bad has happened to him, which is a pretty good hook. Yeah. And I'm assuming that his left hand is not his favorite hand, which means that even though he's writing this cool blood red plant ink on the skin of a mastodon, it still probably looks like he's a first grader. You know, <laughs> this whole story is just in huge kind of stupid looking letters. <laughs> I can't write with my right hand at all. Oh, right, yeah. I'm left-handed. I can't even. It's terrible. Yeah, I can't uh, write with my left. So there you go. It's perfect. Uh, He had a partner in crime, this guy, Tier of Ampalios. Mm -hmm. I guess that's how you pronounce it. A guy who has the kind of name where you just call him Tier of Ampalios all the time. You don't call him Tier of. Mm -hmm. You got to say the whole name. You have to say his whole name, like Matt Parisi. Yeah. I don't think I've ever called him Matt. (laughs) It sounds weird. Just I think his Matt. wife calls him Matt Barisi. His wife calls him Matt Barisi because it's just, he's got one of those names. Matt Barisi, Tira Vampalios. Yeah. And in the story, Olympia he's Duke. always referred to as Tira Vampalios. That's right. So they live in this kind of medieval world, very Conan-esque kind of thing. They talk about Hyperborea and Lemuria and all that stuff. I read those Lynn Carter books about Lemuria when I was a kid. Thongor of Lemuria. Oh, right. Yeah. I loved those. And Thongor is a name I can get behind. That is not hard to say. Thongor is awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring Thongor back one of these days. Thongor was really big in the 60s. Yeah, well, there was a comic book. There was a Thongor comic book Marvel put out. There was, yeah. I've got a few issues of that. It's good stuff. Now, this part of the story, there's a bit of bragging going on about how good of thieves these guys were and the heists that they pulled. Yeah, he recounts how they ripped off these jewels that were kept in a room full of snakes, which is pretty impressive. Yeah. And, and they used acid to silently break open this box and steal a bunch of metals. So they've got good skills. Yeah. They're very... They're very good. Now, folks were starting to crack down on thieving in their hood by getting better locks, putting more bars in the window. The guards weren't as sleepy as they normally were. (laughs) Generally, security was getting tight. Yeah. So bad news for them, because no matter how good they are at being thieves, sometimes people just get savvy and it becomes very difficult. I mean, they even got to the point where they had trouble stealing a sack of yams. Mm -hmm. Things were getting really rough for them. And he brings up the yams because he doesn't want the reader to think he's too cocky. No. It's important that he demonstrates his humility. Well, this whole story is him demonstrating his humility. So one night, they're really down on their luck. They decide they're going to pool their resources together and see how much money they've got. And they have enough for a loaf of bread or a bottle of wine. Yeah. And that's Olympia Dukakis is the one that's saying, (laughs) I want to eat. But Tourist Satana is like, no, I think we should get drunk because that will inspire us to come up with a great heist idea. And Mm -hmm. Olympia says, "Okay, that's superior reasoning. Let's go to the tavern, which they do. They have some leisurely drinks there. The wine isn't very good, but they get pretty ginned up. Things start feeling good. The ideas start flowing. So Satanpra says, you know, we're brave and we're not superstitious at all. Mm. I say we go over to Camorium and we ransack it. Because we're not afraid of the legends. You know, that's ridiculous. It's all superstitious nonsense. And Tira Vampolia says, dude, it's on. Let's do it. They're not afraid. And no. 
they should be because a doom came to Camorium <laughs> hundreds of years ago, just like it did for Sarnath in that Lovecraft story. Sure did. Actually, I was really happy. I don't know if, if folks are watching Game of Thrones this season, but there was a nice reference to um, as Tyrion and uh, Jorah Mormont are walking through the ruins of a city. He says, you know, the doom came to this city. And I know that was a, a reference. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. This is an interesting backstory. A prophet foretold the doom coming for all who live in Camorium. People listened to this prophecy and just got the heck out. They didn't stick around to see what it was going to be. So nobody can say exactly what the doom was that was coming. It could have been madness. Uh, maybe it was this pestilence. Nobody really knows. Their strange tales are told of horrors and terrors not yet to be faced or overcome by man haunt the old shrines and mausoleums and palaces of Camorium. So there might be monsters there. Nobody really knows. These guys aren't going to fall for it, though. They believe it's a bunch of hogwash. Yeah. The one thing they do know is that because people scrammed so fast from Camorium, there's a ton of treasure there. Yeah. They left all their stuff behind. So there's probably precious stones in the idols. There's probably all kinds of altar vessels, furnishings, lots of great stuff they can get from the mummies. Yeah. Great place to rob. And there's not going to be anybody to stop them. There won't be any locks on the doors. Nothing like that. It'll be easy peasy. They just have to not be superstitious and afraid. So they set off the next day and enjoy the lovely journey through the countryside, ripping off the less savvy rural folk. Yeah, they steal as they go. <laughs> and, uh, you know, some of these old school thieves, I was just reading something the other day about old school thieving and how it's kind of dying off. It was an interesting article because the policemen sounded kind of wistful about it. They were talking about lush workers in the New York City subway. What's that? Lush workers are pickpockets. You basically find someone who's drunk and half passed out or passed out. Uh, and they would use a razor to cut their pocket and pull the wallet out from the bottom. Oh. So the drunk guy wakes up and they just have a hole in their pocket. Exactly. The policeman that was being interviewed said they knew exactly how many were left. There were 109 lush workers left because nobody does this anymore because they don't need to because everybody has iPhones. Right. They have all these expensive electronics. And so right. that's so much easier to snatch. That the art of pickpocketing is going away. Well, and I guess people would have like credit cards and things like that as yeah, well. Right. People carry less cash, so it's probably not uh, as advantageous. I yeah. mean, I rarely, nowadays, I rarely have anything more than like, you know, a fiver on me. A, a fiver on you? <laughs> a fiver. A fiver. It's wishful thinking on your part. <laughs> yeah. They get past the farmland. <laughs> uh, they, they snag a bunch of food. They eat as they go. They're really having a nice time. It's beautiful countryside. But the farmland kind of becomes more of a jungle, and it becomes a scary jungle. The flowers are unwholesomely large, mm -hmm. and the fruits uh, are the same way. It's color out of space kind of stuff. Large purple orange, and they dare not eat them. And these are the sort of details that I think put Smith on a level a little above Dunsany, as far as a good read goes. Yeah. You know, Dunsany works in that mythological mode, whereas Smith here, I mean, he's really filling in the details and putting you in, in this situation. Yeah. I also really like the animal life. There are no birds or animals in the jungle, but at rare intervals, a stealthy viper would glide past their feet. Or some enormous moth with baroque and evil-colored motlings flew before us and disappeared in the dimness of the jungle. Moths are so disgusting. <laughs> that really got to me. And of course, there are bats. You always gotta have bats. You gotta have bats. What are you doing if you don't have bats? You're not writing. That's what I say. Exactly. You know, speaking of Barisi, wasn't it Barisi that, that said any movie is better if it's got a helicopter or a monkey in it? He had a theory that there is a committee in Hollywood that makes a decision <laughs> on every movie. <laughs> It's the committee of monkeys and helicopters, I believe. And they, they, a movie goes before them and they decide which is the appropriate thing to insert, whether it's a monkey or a helicopter. I have never met this shadow organization, but I haven't had them disproven either. And there are yeah, a lot true. of monkeys and helicopters in movies. Ideally, That's you true. could get both of them in there. You know, if yeah. you've got a 
Planet of the Apes kind of situation. Well, they don't have helicopters, though, really. Planet of the Apes. Well, in the, you know, the well, the one where they came back to Los Angeles, I think there were some helicopters. There's some helicopters in that one. Yeah, Escape from Planet of the Apes. That's my favorite one. That one's, God, that movie's awesome. They are very cautious in this jungle and a bit scared, but they decide to stop and eat some of the food that they stole earlier and indulge in a little bit of stolen booze. Right. And that chills them out a bit. And they get to the point where they're even singing songs. Yeah. Night fell, but they're all you know, feeling awesome. They got drunk courage right now. And they go, you know what? We're going to go into Camorium now in the middle of the night because we're awesome. It's a good plan. (laughs) It's always good to get real drunk before you do something dangerous. (laughs) Well, they don't think it's going to be dangerous. That's the whole point. Sure. So they finally get to Camorium and it's still there. And surprisingly, it's in really good condition, Mm -hmm. which, you know, you would think that it's a hundred years that there'd be some kind of wear and tear on it. Just the jungle would reclaim it. But no, not really. It's kind of almost protected. Mm-hmm. And it's deathly quiet there. Tarav and Polios is getting a bit nervous about it. He was wishing it was daytime, right? And then Satana says, uh, <laughs> Tarav and Polios, I trust that you're not growing superstitious. I should be lost to think that you are succumbing to the infantile fancies of the multitude. How about let us have another drink? There you go. More liquid courage. Beer. The cause of and the solution to all of life's problems. <laughs> they move on. They get to a part of the city that seems to be kind of like a town square. In it, they find a very nondescript building that's made of black stone, and they know this to be a shrine of Sathagawa, the elder god. Sathagawa, one of the elder gods who receives no longer any worship from men, but before whose ashen altars people say the furtive and ferocious beasts of the jungle, the ape, the giant sloth, and the long-toothed tiger have sometimes been seen to make obeisance and have been heard to howl or whine their inarticulate prayers." I got to say that when I was reading this, that was the one thing that really stood out to me in the story. Just how weird it would be to go anywhere and see animals praying. Yeah. That would be the strangest thing in the world. I would be so horrified. What are they doing? What are they praying to? Because something crazy is going on that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. That was the scariest part of the story to me. What really caught me is the giant sloth. Mm -hmm. Because an ape and a tiger, you know, that's pretty scary stuff. But giant sloth? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> kind of slow. Everybody's welcome. Everybody's welcome. I guess so. Before yeah, Tisnagua. <laughs> Which, by the way, was invented by Clark Ashton Smith. We yes. were speculating about this when we covered the Black Stone last month, about whether Clark Ashton Smith invented it or if that was what it was in reference to. Right. Yes, Clark Ashton Smith invented the deity. Also, curiously enough, the Black Stone and this story were both published in the November 1931 issue of Weird Tales. Oh, whoa. There's also a story in there called The Doom Around the Corner, I think. <laughs> oh, a little heavy on this doom stuff, guys. The door to the temple is slightly splintered in a jar. So they go in hoping to find some sweet-ass jewels because temples, you know, have jewels. Yeah. They really do have to shove on the door to get it open because the hinges are rusted. But they do. They're able to get inside. And inside is a huge statue of something they know to be Sathagwa. I had never seen an image of Sathagwa before, but I recognized him without difficulty from the descriptions I had heard. He was very squat and pot-bellied. His head was more like that of a monstrous toad than a deity, and his whole body was covered with an imitation of short fur, giving somehow a vague suggestion of both the bat and the sloth. His sleepy lids were half-lowered over his globular eyes, and the tip of a queer tongue issued from his fat mouth. In truth, he was not a comely or personable sort of god, and I did not wonder at the cessation of his worship, which could only have appealed to very brutal and aboriginal men at any time. So it's kind of gross. Yeah, pretty creepy. Uh, but there's no jewels to be found on no. that sculpture. They're pretty upset about it, but there is something even stranger in this place. 
there is a large bronze basin. It's right in front of the statue. It's about six feet in diameter, about three feet deep. Its brim is up higher, though. It's as Mm -hmm. tall as a man's shoulder. Like it's lifted up on three legs, which have clawed feet. Yeah. And it's filled with some sort of viscous, semi-translucent substance. But that's opaque, and it's sooty color, so it's kind of, you know, blackish gray. Yeah, there's this terrible fetter, this terrible smell in the temple, and they realize it's coming from that bathtub, you know. So they go over there and look into it and see that terrible semi-liquescent substance. It starts to move as if there's some kind of creature inside of it. Yeah, I I thought it was going to be Sathagyu that was going to come out of there, but, uh, well, here's what happens. This ebullition increased rapidly. The center swelled as if with the action of some powerful yeast, and we watched in utter horror while an uncouth, amorphous head with dull and bulging eyes arose gradually on an ever-lengthening neck and stared us in the face with primordial malignity. Then two arms, if one could call them arms, likewise arose inch by inch, and we saw that the thing was not, as we had thought, a creature immersed in the liquid, but that the liquid itself had put forth this hideous neck and head and was now forming these damnable arms that groped towards us with tentacle-like appendages in lieu of claws or hands. Wow. That's the coolest. I did not expect that. I really thought it was going to be Sathagia coming out of there and it said it was, you know, the T-2000, the, the Terminator right. comes out of there. <laughs> or a Shoggoth. Or I mean, a Shoggoth, exactly. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. And we get a bit of a, a, and there's a pursuit. These guys hightailing out of there and this thing chases after him, which is just like in the Mountains of Madness. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the, the thing pours over the rim of the basin like a torrent of black quicksilver and it takes a form which immediately develops a, a dozen short legs. <laughs> Yeah. It's a pretty, pretty terrible thing. And they run and it's coming after them and it's right on their heels. And it stretches out and it gets a mouth really big, like a mouth that's so big that it can just consume them, both of them in one big gulp. Oh, geez. And they run, 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 run through the jungle. But this thing is right on their heels. They're trying to go into these little pockets where it's kind of grown over, hoping they can get rid of it. But yeah, nope, nope. It's right there. It says they run for hours. And they don't know where they're going because it's a confusing jungle. They're they're exhausted. They're tired. And they get the sense that it's toying with them. That if it wanted to get them, it could get them. But it's letting them just run. I mean, that's pretty horrible. And I would think that you would just sort of want to give up at at that point. But they don't. They keep keep going for it, man. So I got to give them some points for that. If they're running for hours from a monster, that's that's pretty good physical conditioning as well. Especially after drinking that much. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't think I could do it. But unfortunately, they've been running in circles. You know, they've been running so randomly, they pop out and realize they're right back in Camorium. Not only that, they're right, they're a javelin's throw away from the Temple of Sithogua. So right back where they started. Yeah. Which was probably what the thing was doing to them in some subtle way, you know. Yeah, maybe kind of there. corralling them. Yeah. yeah. So they run to the temple and they slam the door behind them mm-hmm. and figure, well, you know, we can maybe hold the door and that'll stop it. I mean, they're this wishful thinking on their part. But Dawn is coming. So yeah. maybe maybe that'll save them. Yeah, maybe the monster will go away. Wrong. There are three apertures in the door <laughs> that they slammed shut. Where it's, you know, it's rotted and busted up. There's three little holes there. And sure enough, the thing seeps through the holes, runs down in a stream onto the floor, and then reforms into monster. Uh, Sat- Satana uh, decides <laughs> <laughs> he runs and hides behind the statue of Sathagua. Yeah. Uh, and, and just sort of, he says, farewell, Tarovan Polyus, like, just leaves him and goes and runs and hides, and he's holding the door, trying to keep it closed. Yeah, but there's no room for him to hide behind the statue. So he jumps into the basin, which is... <laughs> 
That's just the worst idea in the universe, but, you know. <laughs> He's panicked. He doesn't know what to do. Yeah. Says, no sooner had Tiro of Ampolios crouched down in the three-legged bull when the nameless enormity reared itself up like a sooty pillar and approached the basin. The thing loomed above the brim for an instant, gathering all its bulk in an imminent mass of, uh, on a sort of tapering tail, and then like a lapsing wave, it fell into the bowl upon Tiro of Ampolios. Yeah. Horrible. It flows over him into the basin. While the thing is presumably devouring Tiro of Ampolios... Uh, our main guy decides, I, here's my chance. He sneaks over to the door totally quiet. But if he wants to draw the bolt back to get out, he's got to make a little bit of noise. Even as I shot back the bolt, a single tentacle sprang out with infernal rapidity from the basin and elongating itself across the whole room, it caught my right wrist in a lethal clutch. It was unlike anything I have ever touched. It was indescribably viscid and slimy and cold. It was loathsomely soft like the foul mire of a bog and mordantly sharp as an edged metal with an agonizing suction and constriction that made me scream aloud as the clutch tightened upon my flesh, cutting into me like a vice of knife blades. In my struggles to free myself, I drew the door open and fell forward on the sill. A moment of awful pain and then I became aware that I had broken away from my captor. But looking down, I saw that my hand was gone, leaving a strangely withered stump from which little blood issued. Then, gazing behind me into the shrine, I saw the tentacle recoil and shorten till it passed from view behind the rim of the basin, bearing my lost hand to join whatever now remained of Teruvon Palios. That's the end of the story. That is the end of the story. A farewell to arms. Oh, <laughs> I, I just want to say there's a site called Eldritch Dark. Uh, where yeah. you can read this story. And there's a lot of other info there about Clark Ashton Smith. I'm glad that resource is out there because I, I wasn't sure where you could read his stuff online. Yeah. Uh, I recommend people go check it out. So what did you think of the story? I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it, it I, to me, it reads way better than a Dunsany story. It just mm-hmm. felt maybe more modern or just the pace of it moved better. Or the characters were a little bit more interesting. That just felt a little bit more real. I guess maybe a little closer to a, to a Conan you know, actually, this feels like a, a true hybrid of a Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard story. Yeah. You know, like it, it's got that balance of, of both those things in it. And I really just like monsters. And it's been a while since we've gotten a, a novel monster that was here fully described, even though it's changing in appearance constantly. Yeah, no, it's a cool story. And I'm looking forward to reading more uh, Clark Ashton Smith. I can't wait to get into it. Other than At the Mountains of Madness, have we encountered these kind of protoplasmic horrors before? I think this is the only other time. As far as I remember, but... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can't remember anything anymore in my adult... Yeah, I don't remember last week. Aged brain. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good one, and I... I... I'm looking forward to reading some more. I am just kind of picking them randomly. Yeah. Next week, we're going to try a different story, The Hunters from Beyond. What I've heard about The Hunters from Beyond is it uh, takes place up in San Francisco. It's kind of a Pikmin's model deal. I think there's a ghoul oh. of some kind in it. Oh. I like ghouls, so that could be really, really cool. That's exciting. If anybody wants to write us and recommend a couple other Clark Ashton Smith stories for the rest of the month, we'll take those recommendations. Absolutely. Especially if Lovecraft specifically talks about them or uh, likes them. After Lovecraft's death, uh, mm-hmm. there was a manuscript on his desk that was found of a poem that he wrote called To Clark Ashton Smith, Esquire, Upon His Fantastic Tales versus Pictures and Sculptures. There's lots of fascinating things we're going to learn about Clark Ashton Smith this month. And we'll get to that stuff next week and the week after and, and mm-hmm. the week after that, of course. <laughs> All June. All June is Clark Ashton Smith June. It's mm-hmm. Clark Ashton Smith. <laughs> 
That's horrible. Sorry. <laughs> I want to thank our reader, Greg Johnson, for bringing the thunder. Mm-hmm. Don't forget to check out his stuff on YouTube. Look for Greg. That's G-R-E-I-G Johnson. Thanks, Greg. We'll link out to the page. And of course, we will also link out to our Kickstarter for the live shows in Providence and Chicago. If you are going to be able to attend one of those events, you can pre-buy your tickets through the Kickstarter. And we'll be offering some other incentives as well for folks who won't be able to make them. Uh, So please check it out. Uh, Fund us if you can. We'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And with that, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. Hey, Chad. This is Brendan. Uh, I'm going to leave you a long voicemail. I need need to explain this right now because it's not going to be funny to me later. I'm driving home and I'm behind this guy. He's in a Hummer, H3 Hummer. And his window's down, and he was tapping on his arm. He had his arm on the window. He had the window down. He had his arm on the door. But I couldn't see his arm because it was kind of inside. All I could see was him. I could see the reflection of the reflection of him in the side view mirror on his door. It's kind of a big rectangular mirror. It's pretty big. He's, I can see his hand flapping up and down, like he's tapping out the beat of some song. I can see his arm, but again, I can see it only in the mirror. And I can see his face, reflected reflected back to me. And I just, I sort of gave in to the thought for a second that he was actually in the mirror, like just, because his hand was tapping exactly on the bottom of like the lens, you know, like it was just perfectly framed where the lens uh, wasn't missing any of his arm at all, or his hand. I was like, that fucking looks like he's in the mirror. And then I just imagined this creepy thing where, well, he came to a rest. I just imagined his hand extending a little bit and his fingers going down out of the glass lens. So, anyway, I miss you. Those are uh, some fun ideas. Not just drive around and be stupid and uh, indulge in stuff like that. Hope you're doing good. Bye. (laughs) HPPodcraft.com.